afternoon. Good afternoon. Is it on? I'd like to welcome you to this afternoon's panel. We're delighted to see so many of you here. I'm Professor Jill Dolan. I'm the chair of the Public Lectures Committee. Before we begin, I just have a couple reminders of upcoming events. We have five more lectures in our series this semester, all of which promise to be quite compelling. Tomorrow, actually, and Friday, Frank Wilczek, who's the Nobel Laureate and Professor of Physics at MIT, will be giving a two-part lecture, which is co-sponsored by the Center for Theoretical Physics. Tomorrow's lecture is at 8 in Makash 50, and Friday's is at 4.30. Next Monday, the 15th, we have documentary filmmaker Earl Morris, who will be here to talk about his work with a lecture entitled The Ashtray. Then on Tuesday, November 30th, art director and graphic designer Chip Kidd will deliver a lecture called Signals. And then finally, on Tuesday, December 7th, singer-songwriter, poet, and National Book, uh, National Book Award-nominated author Patti Smith will be here to both speak and to perform. We've had a really terrific series of events this fall, and I hope you'll be able to join us for these last few lectures of the season. Today's event is supported by the Stafford Little Fund, which was founded in 1899, originally as a forum for ex-president Grover Cleveland, and eventually evolved as an opportunity to invite lecturers who speak more broadly on the social sciences in general. Before we begin, I especially want to thank Carla Cook, the freelance food writer and editor of the Food Times website, who was incredibly helpful in organizing today's event. I actually highly recommend her site, which is thefoodtimes.org. It seeks to transform our understanding of the modern food system, and it's entirely relevant to today's conversation. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our panel on the politics of food and healthcare. The speakers, Marion and David, will speak first, give us a, a few minutes of presentation, and then we'll have a moderated conversation. Marion Nessel is the Paula Gardard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. She's held faculty positions at Cornell, Brandeis, and the UC San Francisco School of Medicine. From 1986 to 88, she was Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services and Managing Editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. <gasps> Professor Nessel is the author of three books, including the award-winning Food Politics, as well as two additional books on the politics of pet food and feeding. She blogs at foodpolitics.com. David Kessler served as commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration from 1990 to 97, and has also served as dean of the medical schools at Yale and UC San Francisco, where he's now a professor of pediatrics, epidemiology, and biostatistics. As FDA com commissioner, Dr. Kessler initiated a number of new programs, including nutrition labeling for food and preventive controls to improve food safety. He was widely praised for revitalizing the agency and using his platform to aggressively advocate for the public's health. Among his many honors and distinctions, Dr. Kessler was named the 2008 National Hero by the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley for his leadership as the nation's top drug regulator and for his courage in challenging the U.S. tobacco industry. I'm getting this year. <laughs> 
The moderator of today's panel is Ruth Reichel, former editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, former restaurant critic of both the New York Times and the LA Times, and herself a cook who was part of the culinary revolution in Berkeley in the mid-70s. She's the author of several best-selling memoirs, including Tender at the Bone, Comfort Me with Apples, and my own personal favorite, Garlic and Sapphires. Ms. Reichel was, has hosted specials on the Food Network and food programs on WNYC Radio. She's been honored with six James Beard Awards, as well as many distinctions for her journalism, and she's recently joined Random House as both an author and editor-at-large. We thank all of you for coming today, panelists and audience alike. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished guests. We had a little conversation um, a couple weeks ago trying to figure out how we were going to do this. And it kind of ended with David saying, Everybody in America is on a diet and living in torment. <laughs> and um, I think that what we're going to do today is kind of find out why that is the case. And we're going to start with Marion um, talking for 12, 12 <laughs> minutes or so. And um, then David will talk for 12 minutes or so. And then we will start talking about what they've talked about. All right, I'm on. Well, it's terrific to be here. Thank you all for coming. And is there any way to get the light off of the screen so people can see the slides? Thank you. Um, the, um, I'm sorry, and is there any way to have the slide show up on this thing so I can see what I'm actually doing? Now I can't see what I'm doing. All right, let's, all right, well, we'll just have to struggle through. Uh, by way of introduction, my own work as a professor is on food systems. Um, and by food systems, I mean the relationship between agriculture, food, nutrition, and public health. And the two areas of public health that I'm most interested in are obesity and food safety. Um, and you may not think that those are very closely related, but you can't tell people what to eat and what they're supposed to be eating unless the food that they're eating is safe. Now, uh, my, my book's Food Politics has come out in two editions. In the first edition in 2002, every, and a very interesting thing happened in between those two editions. Um, in 2002, everybody was talking about obesity as being a matter of personal responsibility. If your kid is fat, it's your fault. Five years later, there was increasing recognition that the environment of food choice has a lot to do with the way people are eating, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, and in order to do that, we have to go back to the dawn of the obesity epidemic um, at the beginning of the early 1980s. And prior to the 1980s, rates of obesity in the United States remained relatively constant. Starting in the early 1980s, they began to go up uh, quite precipitously. And I think there are many reasons for that, but I'm going to talk specifically about two of them. The first is a change in farm policy that encouraged farmers to grow more food than they ever had before. And what that did was to increase the number of calories that were available in the food supply from th 3,200 plus or minus a couple of hundred per person per day, man, woman, and child, 
uh, which it had been for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, to suddenly increase to the present 3,900 calories a day, <clears throat> which is roughly twice uh, the average need of the country. And this was due, as I mentioned, to farm policy, uh, which changed to encourage farmers to grow more food. And the result of that was, uh, what, what do they call it, uh, mountains of corn in a sea of farm subsidies, which no administration has ever been able to get rid of. The point of this <clears throat> was that the increased number of calories had to be sold by the food industry, and it made the food industry very competitive. But their competition was made even harder by the second thing that happened in the early 1980s, which was the advent of what's called the shareholder value movement, starting in 1981 in a speech attributed to Jack Welch, who was then head of General Electric. Jack Welch said, enough of this blue chip stock stuff. We want higher returns on investment now. And as a result of that, Wall Street expected companies to to produce higher immediate returns on investment. And we see the result of that on Wall Street now. For food companies, it was especially difficult. They not only had to make a profit in an environment in which uh, there were twice as many calories as anybody needed, but they had to grow their profits every 90 days. And we see the result of that. And the result of that was to create a food environment in which uh, there's more food available in more places in larger portions than ever before, <clears throat> so that people are encouraged to eat everywhere they go. Now, we see some of that because food was very cheap, supply and demand, there was so much of it. It became cheaper to eat outside the home, and food outside the home has more calories than food inside the home. And much of the increase in food outside the home was in fast food, which is heavily advertised and very high in calories. And then larger portions are a sufficient explanation uh, for the increase in the number of calories in the food supply and in people's diets. If I had one thing to teach, it would be that larger portions have more calories. <laughs> the other point from supply and demand was that food was very cheap. And because of the way our federal policies work, you can go to McDonald's with $5 and either buy five hamburgers or one salad. And that is a result of federal policy and is something really to think about. When people say that fruits and vegetables are expensive, they're not kidding. Um, and if you look at the indexed price of fruits and vegetables uh, starting in the early 1980s to the present, uh, their index price has gone up by about 40%. In contrast, the indexed price of butter, beer, and sodas has gone down from 15 to 30%. Again, this is federal policy that we're talking about. Now, our companies support these federal policies with an extraordinary amount of money in advertising, billions of dollars in advertising. And I've just shown one example here of $21 million um, spent on advertising just that one kind of cereal last year. Um, and any nationally advertised product has a budget something along those lines or much higher. The graph here is the amount of money that the Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, and the beverage industry spent to fight uh, soft drink taxes last year. Uh, prior to that, their lobbying bills were in the one or two million dollars a year. Last year, it went up to nearly 40 million dollars in order to fight the idea of soda taxes. 
Um, companies are also doing amazing things with health claims, and this is a collection of some of my favorite current products. Um, immunity claims, heart disease claims, fiber claims, and my current favorite is this antioxidant. It's going to fix your prostate claim. Um, the FDA has chosen not to do very much about these claims, uh, in part because they lost all of the court cases about them. Palm Wonderful is taking the Federal Trade Commission to court because uh, on the grounds of the First Amendment. And I don't know how you feel about the First Amendment, but when I was in grammar school, I learned that the First Amendment was to protect political and religious speech. It never occurred to me that the First Amendment was designed to protect the right of food marketers to market junk foods to kids. But that's how the courts have interpreted it, and it's very unlikely that in our present uh, atmosphere, in our present Supreme Court, that that is going to change. Now, um, uh, let me say just a few words about food safety. We're experiencing these days extraordinary recalls of vast amounts of products, a, a result of our increasingly industrialized and centralized food system. And the, if you look at the list of just the major recalls of foods that have come up just since 2006, the list gets longer and longer and longer every day with the most recent being this uh, cheese that, the Costco cheese that has just been recalled. A lot of this has to do with the failure of our food safety system to uh, protect Americans and to have actually any laws that insist that most of our foods be protected safely. Our laws for food safety are mostly voluntary. Now there is a bill before Congress right now um, that was passed by the House in July of 2009, and the Senate has been sitting on it ever since and has not acted on it. Maybe they'll act on it in December. Everybody's keeping fingers crossed. This bill by, is by no means perfect, but it will give the FDA the resources and the authority that it needs to protect the food supply a lot better than it's able to do so now. Will it pass? I don't know, we'll have to see how the politics go. Uh, but The Onion had a solution to the problem of food safety, which is just simply for the FDA to approve salmonella, um, and then we won't have any problems. Now, I would be depressed about a lot of these things, except that I think we're in the middle of a very important and serious uh, food revolution, um, a, a food movement that is centered on not only food consumption, but also food production, and it's the slow food revolution and the organic revolution and the locally grown food revolution and all of those um, kind of disparate and many different kinds of movements that are converge on making the food supply healthier for people and for the planet. And I think that what we need to do these days is not only to vote with our forks, for the kind of food system that we want. Every time we make a choice of food, we're voting for the kind of food system that we want, but we also need to vote with our vote. And I was very impressed that the last food issue of the nation, a left-wing magazine, talked about what I think is the most important issue going on here, which is grassroots democracy. Um, the nation's subtitle was How to Grow Democracy, and I think the food movement is democracy of the people, by the people, for the people, and which is reason enough to get into it, so I hope you'll all join the food revolution. Thank you very much.
So that was, that was terrific. Um, um, and it's fascinating. Um, Marion is going to do um, the politics and the policy and the regulation. Uh, I'm going to try to do the personal. Um, and everything you said, you got right. But I think it's half the story. And the question is, yes, all that food is out. Yes, we've changed when we eat. Yes, we've changed how we eat. The question still remains is, why do I do it? Why do I have suits in every size? Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's the question. Now, this is not a pitch for the book. This is, in a couple of weeks, someone said Chip Kidd is coming here. Chip Kidd is one of the great graphic designers. If you, he did the cover. If you, it took me six months to understand it. If you understand the cover of this book, you understand the neuroscience of eating. Now, play me straight. How many of you look at the carrot cake? Raise your hand. How many of you look at the carrots? This is Princeton. This is not America. Okay. So I wanted to get a handle on this. Right? I am sitting in my office at Yale Medical School with a group of residents and fellows, not talking about food. I did tobacco, left Washington, and I asked a very simple question. If you want to stay alive, what can you do? What's the evidence-based literature on the, if you really want to stay alive? Exercise. I mean, what are you going to die of? You're going to die of cancer, cardiovascular disease, or stroke. Right? And so we were pulling all, this is before everything was online, I was pulling all the evidence-based literature, um, asked the librarian at Yale to help me, and I noticed that as she was pulling over a three-month period all the prevention articles on cancer, cardiovascular disease, and stroke, she lost 30 pounds. Right? And so she, we all know it's not good for us, right? But she was living this. And if it was just diet and exercise, we would all do it. So I, I, first I try to get a handle of what's going on in this country. So I call Catherine Flagel, I mean, who's one of the great epidemiologists at CDC. And she, I said, over my lifetime, how has weight changed? When I was growing up, what was weight like? This is age. That's um, in kilograms. We just double it for pounds. And um, she's allowed to do it. She's one of the great epidemiologists. But she, she plotted cross-sectional data like this. She shouldn't do this. But this is the 1960s. Basically, you entered your 20s. You gained a few pounds. You were relatively flat between 20 uh, and uh, your 50s, and you lost a few pounds. That's what weight was like in the 1960s. Here's weight for the country in the 1970s. Here's the weight in the 1990s. Here's 2000. Right? What's changed? You certainly continue to gain weight much later, but you enter your adult years 18 pounds heavier. So where is this occurring? Where is this weight gain occurring? It's occurring in, pe in children and in adolescents. So then, all right, what's changed? It's not genetics. It's three, four decades, right? Genes don't change, right? So where do you go? I can't figure this out. Marion's right. Certainly, access to food has changed. Policies has changed. Right? But why do I keep on doing it? And so I'm, I'm surfing through the channels one night, and I turn to Oprah. And there's a Dr. Phil segment. Don't get me started on Dr. Phil. But he, has, he brings up on the set a woman who I remember is well-spoken, well-educated, sophisticated. 
And she says, I eat uh, after my husband goes off to work in the morning. I eat before he comes home at night. I eat when I'm happy. I eat when I'm sad. I eat when I'm hungry. I eat when I'm not hungry. And then she looked in the camera for that open moment and said, and I don't like myself. And I was trying to listen and listen as a clinician. What was I hearing? Why was this woman doing something that she didn't want to be doing, but she was doing it anyway? And it wasn't because someone was telling her she had to do it. That's what I wanted to understand. That's the journey of the last seven years. And I have seven minutes to do an hour lecture <laughs> on that. So I'm going to give you five pieces of the science very quickly, and then we can put it together. Remember, everyone here, we thought we used to have a, a set point. When I went to med school, it was a set point. You know what that is? There's a thermostat. And if you lost weight, you gained it back, right? It, and it was metabolism. Well, if there was a set point, we wouldn't be all getting bigger and bigger. So there's not a biological set point. So let me give you the five hypotheses, five pieces of the science. First piece of science. In the presence, and this, this correlates with Marion, Marion's comment, in the presence of a varied and limitless diet, where people and animals tend to eat excessively. How do I know that? This is the work of Tony Scofani and Peter Rogers of the United Kingdom. This is an animal if you just put them in a cage and you feed them a lab chow. This is from birth to their adult weight, okay? That's if you feed them lab chow. Give into that cage, just put it there, right? What they call the American supermarket diet, right? Chocolate chips, crackers, peanuts, right? That's their way. Take away the American supermarket diet and weight comes back down, put it back on laboratory chow, but it does not go all the way. I wanted to know the answer to a very simple question, not the typical scientific title of a scientific journal, Deconstructing the Vanilla Milkshake. What is it in the vanilla milkshake that drives wanting? Wanting, not liking, but wanting. Right? Is it, just raise your hands. Is it the, what's in the vanilla milkshake? It's sugar, fat, and flavor. How many of you think it's the sugar? Raise your hand. Yeah, about a third. How many think it's the fat? Yeah, about another third. How many think it's the flavor? Yeah, a little less than a third. How many think it's all three? Sugar's the main driver. If you do the progressive ratios and the fixed ratios, but when you add fat to it, it's synergistic. Right? I asked my colleague, um, Jatana DiCherry, who's one of the great pharmacologists. You also have uh, also um, one of the great scientists, Jennifer Nasser here, who, who's done work in, in the audience. I asked Jatano, uh, explain to me, right, Jatano's work in the 1980s was on dopamine. What does dopamine do in the brain? Pleasure. Pleasure? No, that's actually the opioids. Dopamine gates your attention. It has to do with attention learning. It focuses you. It gates certain neural circuits. Gitano's major work in the 1980s was amphetamine, cocaine, heroin, and morphine all elevate brain dopamine. And in a textbook, you read, food gives you a little bump in brain dopamine, but it habituates. These drugs of abuse give you rises in brain dopamine each and every time, right? I said to Gitano, let's feed animals fat and sugar over repeat periods of time. Condition them, give them the experience, give them months of fat and sugar, and tell me what happens in brain dopamine. When you do the controls, you see you get a little bump in do brain dopamine, that green, but the second and third time it habituates. Feed them fat and sugar over a repeat period of time. You're actually, you're conditioning them, right? And then uh, feed, test the dopamine levels each and every time, and you see you have rises each and every time in brain dopamine. There's no habituation. So if you give animals and people, you know, highly salient stimuli, you can elevate 
brain dopamine each and every time. The fact is, fat and sugar, fat and salt, fat, sugar, and salt stimulate intake. I used to think I was eating for satisfaction, for nourishment, to fill myself up. I didn't realize I was eating um, to stimulate myself. This is the work of the late Ann Kelly. I just show it to show these are the learning memory habit and motivational circuits. It's these circuits that get captured, that get stimulated by powerful stimuli. And what are those powerful stimuli? It can be fat, sugar, salt. Okay? I wanted to know how many women, how many people were like that woman on Oprah. So what was I hearing when I heard what she was saying? I, I was hearing a, a self-report of a loss of control, a lack of uh, feeling full, a hard time stopping, an obsessive a preoccupation. You know, if that uh, pizza box is there and there's only one slice left, right? You're thinking to yourself and you're sitting there with your family, right? Am I going to get the last slice? Or you're eating and as you're eating, you're thinking about, while you're eating food, you're thinking about what you're going to be eating next, right? So what we found is 50% of people who are obese 30% of people who are overweight, 20% of the people who are healthy weight score very high on those three characteristics. Those are elements of a conditioned and driven behavior. And this is the last piece of the science. Where does the power of food come from? Power of food comes from where? Taste? Not necessarily. It comes from the anticipation of the taste, which is what? The smell, the food cue, right? And what you see on the top graph is that in everybody, the brain's amygdala, the amygdala, the emotional core of the brain responds to food cues. What's a cue? A cue can be the sight, it could be the smell, it could be the time of day. Every time I land in San Francisco airport, when the plane hits the runway, I start thinking about these Chinese dumplings. The plane, because there's this place in the food court, right? Now, this is the important part. If you take people who have a hard time controlling their they're eating. And this is not a disease. I'm not talking about an eating disorder. You see in people who have this condition type who score very high on these characteristics, and it also correlates with weight gain, you, you see excessive activation. When you cue them, their amygdala is excessively activated. And what people who have a hard time resisting their eating, you see, is when you give them the food, their amygdala stays activated until all the food is gone. So there is a biological correlate right, of why it's so hard to control our eating. And when people understand that, that's a very big deal because the light bulb goes off and they say to themselves, what do you mean? It's not my fault, right? So let me just put this all together very simply and then we can all come up here, okay? Understand this is not a disease. We now have a biological reason why it's so hard for us to, to resist, okay? What happened here? We are all wired to focus on, a, on salient stimuli. What's a salient stimuli? If a bear walked in here, I assure you, you stop listening to me, you focus on that bear. If your child's sick, right, you're thinking about your child, right? Alcohol, tobacco, illegal drugs, sex, gambling, they could be the salient stimuli. They capture the, uh, the neural circuits, the learning, memory, habit, motivational uh, uh, circuits. What's the most socially acceptable uh, salient stimuli in an environment? Food, and what, what component of foods? Fat, sugar, and salt. Highly palatable foods that have been layered and loaded with fat, sugar, and salt have in essence become hot stimuli. So what Marion has talked about, what the food industry has done, what's been the game plan? What's been the business plan of the modern food company? It's to take fat, sugar, and salt, put it on every corner, make it available 24-7, make it socially acceptable to eat any time. Last point, I'm invited to London. 
They said, explain what's going on. This is one of the global food companies, largest food companies in the world. I said, I'm going to give you an analogy. Tobacco and food, you've got to be careful. Okay, there's similarities and there's differences. Nicotine. Nicotine's a moderately reinforcing drug, right? Animals will work for nicotine, but it's, not, it's only moderately reinforcing. Add to the nicotine the smoke, the throat scratch, the color of the pack, the cellophane crinkling, the image of the cardboard, the sense in my parents' and my parents' grandparents' generation that it was sexy, glamorous to smoke, right? What did we do? We took a reinforcing chemical and we made it into a highly addictive product. Right? I give you a package of sugar and say, go have a good time. You're going to say, what are you talking about? Add to that sugar fat, add texture, add color, add mouthfeel, add temperature, add the emotional gloss of advertising, add everything that Marion has talked about, make food into entertainment, walk into a food mall. We're living in a food carnival. What did we expect to happen? Thank you. It seems to me that the piece in the New York Times this weekend beautifully um, spoke to both, both of your points. I mean, this piece about the uh, government um, paying cheese producers to make more cheese and then marketing to Domino's. Um, is, it's both of these. It's we're telling the dairy people to make more cheese and then um, we're... You're surprised? Adding, I am not surprised. What I want to know is, I mean, we're talking here about the politics. What can we do about that? You're, you're, asked, you're surprised that the USDA has one branch that focuses on trying to help farmers and another branch that's focused on nutrition? And that, that, that shocks you? It does. And that, it, and that they don't talk to each other? Right, but, 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 but so that pizza is right here. I mean, I know it doesn't do it for you, but that pizza's here, it's, it smells good. I mean, I have my own ambivalence towards cheese. I have ambivalence towards cheese, too, but not on Domino's Pizza. Uh, but, I mean, the question ask is... Mary, ask. Well, I, I loved that article. I mean, first of all, I was astounded that a, an article about the Department of Agriculture and Cheese uh, was on, not only on the front page of the New York Times, but in the upper right-hand corner, which is judged by the editors to be the most important story of the day. It must have been a slow news week. The, um, the, the part about that article that just really got to me, I'm a nutritionist, I'm supposed to know these things, was the nutritional analysis of a quarter of a Domino's pizza. Now, they didn't say what the diameter of that pizza was, so it was hard to tell, but a quarter of the pizza, who eats a quarter of a pizza? They're doing what David is talking about. You can't eat a quarter of a pizza, it's not possible to eat a quarter of a pizza. And it had um, uh, you know, more than 70% of the day's allotment of saturated fat, 80% of the day's allotment of sodium, and uh, 400 calories. And, but you have to multiply by four. Uh, you know. Okay, but the point is, I mean, you go to secret meetings at the White House. You've been in the government. I mean, we're all sitting here. We look at this article. It's appalling. Um, and we're going to read another one six months from now and another one, you know, um, and it's great that it's all in the news now, which five years ago it wouldn't have been, mm -hmm. 
but um, I want to know, is there something I is, this surely has to be fixable. Only uh, one way, only one way, election campaign laws. That as long as we have election campaign laws that are allowed to be funded by corporations, nothing's going to change. <laughs> unless so, unless so, so, there's a grassroots revolution. Oh, okay. So. Which I'm not keep, suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <Yeah>. David. <laughs> I've left him speechless. <laughs> if you look at. Again, look at tobacco. Right? What did we do as a country on tobacco? Right? Was it laws? Was it regulations? No. The, 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 I mean, we worked for 15 years, right? They, they're helpful. I mean, and they put out great labels today. You know, we worked 15 years, and the president signed the law, gave FDA the regulation. But, but, but that wasn't the real change, right? What was the real change on tobacco? Education, no, it's not cognitive, right? What did we change? We change how we perceive the product. We used to look uh -huh. at the product and we said, that's my friend, right? That's cool, that is glamorous, right? And we, let's face it, we demonized the industry, right? And we changed it from the va a positive valence stimuli to something that's a deadly, disgusting, addictive product. Now, the problem we have Right, is tobacco is easy because I can live with tobacco. Right? Food it has to be enjoyable. It has to be pleasurable. I can't live without food. Right? So I can't change the valence of it, otherwise I can end up with the eating disorders in, in some people. Right? So, I mean, you, you expect, this is not gonna change unless we change how we look at food. Right? And that's the movement. And that's what I credit both of you and uh, Michael and Alice. You know, originally I, I wondered whether it was elitist, right? I mean, pick any appetizer in any modern American restaurant. I mean, pick buffalo wings, right? So you start off with the fatty part of the chicken, right, to begin with. You fry it in the manufacturing plant, right? You load 30, 40% fat into the chicken wing. That pushes 30% of the water out. You're, Fry it again in the kitchen of the restaurant. That loads another 30, 40% fat. And if the red sauce is what? You know, fat and, and sugar. What is, and the white creamy sauce is fat, sugar, and salt. What are we eating? We're eating fat on fat on fat on sugar on fat on sugar and salt. Until we change, I mean, I, I was eating these big portions. I was self-stimulating myself. I, I had to change how I look at food. None of the stuff I was eating is even food. Until you change that, you're not going to change Washington. Well, that's why the new frontier of the food movement is processed food. Um, and I can, see, I can see it coming, because it's coming from everywhere, that there's going to be a real push to try to get people to eat foods that aren't processed, or are less processed. And that's good. That's good. Right. I mean, I mean understand, back in the 1930s, 1940s, in order to feed a hungry nation, what did we do? We learned to process, the food industry learned to process foods. A lot of advantages, increased shelf life, costs came down, able to ship foods uh, over longer distances, a lot of advantages. What did the industry learn to do along the way when it processed foods? It learned to dial in fat, sugar, and salt, and it also learned to take out anything objectionable in the food. Right? So that in essence, you know, I mean, we used to chew what, 20, 30 times per bite, 
back two, three decades. Today, food goes down in a whoosh. So we're just eating adult baby food. It's being mainlined. Right? I mean, so we're just, I mean, so, so I mean, it, it, again, the, it's going to have to start by what we want. Right? And it's not something that someone can lecture you. And I mean, we got it. It's, it. This is about social norms. I mean, why don't why haven't the French gotten fat until recently? Or, or the Japanese? Right. Well, they're the, getting I mean, fat the, the, now. Well, but but up until recently, until <laughs> up until we exported, right? I mean, what you talked about, the, the French, the French, the social norm was you you never ate between meals. You never ate walking down the street. I mean, you, I mean, you ate three times a day. I mean, you ate maybe half of what we eat. You ate real food, but it wasn't socially acceptable to eat between meals. Right? Now, now, the other dirty little secret is they smoked, and they wanted to smoke <laughs> rather than you know, uh, eat dessert. So, Well, okay, but we now live in a country where if you're a poor child, you probably get 70% of your calories at school. And this, and we are training the next generation. I mean, as much as everybody in this room can turn away and demonize fast food and say, I'm only going to eat, you know, when that buffalo wing comes, I'm really going to eat the celery sticks and forget everything <laughs> else. Um, we have a generation of children who are being marketed from the time that they are three and start and head start, essentially fast food, salt, sugar, and fat. And if we want to change the next generation, I mean, we have a, we, we've done an experiment on an entire generation. If we want to change this in the next generation, we don't really have a lot of time to allow this grassroots movement. So I showed this data and some others. I had a panel of four diabetologists. Right? And they looked at the data, and they understood that when you really understand the neural circuitry and what's happening is that the behavior, not just our behavior, but our kids' behavior, once you give them and expose them to constantly this hyperpalatable foods, I mean, it becomes conditioned and driven. Right? So it involves the learning, memory, habit, and motivational circuits. And you lay down that circuitry, and we know that circuitry, once it lays down, you can lay down new learning on top of that low learning, but never goes away. I mean, you watch a kid. The average two-year-old compensates for their eating, right? You give them more calories at lunch, they'll eat fewer calories the rest of the day. By the time that child is four or five, they don't compensate anymore. Sixty percent just keep on eating throughout the day. So I know I was trained as a doc to take care of type 2 diabetes. What's type 2 diabetes? It's the accumulation of fat in muscle, right? Excess calories, increased fat, increased fat in the muscle interferes with glucose uh, uh, homeostasis uh, in the body. Type 2 diabetes, you know, I used to see 50, 60-year-olds who live for two, three decades, have the eye complications, the cardiovascular complications, um, the, the renal complications. Now I have a 10-year-old, and that 10-year-old develops type 2 diabetes because of that excess fat in the muscle. And that, type, that child, that 10-year-old, now is potentially going to live for five, six, seven decades with those complications. And none of us have any sense of how to take care or the consequences of that. They looked at this data and you learn that the, the behavior becomes conditioned and driven. What do you think their reaction was? We're toast as a country. Hmm. 
Yeah, can, can, very encouraging. can I comment on that? I mean, I think there are two things going on. You have to vote with your fork, you have to vote with your vote. And I want to talk about the voting with your vote a little bit on, the, on this point. Because there are food marketers who are marketing to children have very deliberate strategies. Uh, they want to do three things. They want to um, induce brand loyalty so that if a, Coke, if a kid wants Coke, It'll always want Coke rather than Pepsi. They want kids to pester their parents. That's what it's called in the literature. Um, and you know what that is if you've ever seen a two-year-old in a supermarket. Um, and, but the third one is the one that bothers me the most. And that's what I call kids' food. If you're a marketer trying to uh, sell a food to a kid, you want that child to think that children are supposed to eat different foods than their parents eat. They're supposed to eat kids' food, kid cuisine, things that come in boxes, packages with cartoons on the front, um, in funny shapes and sizes, unidentified food objects, and you don't want and you don't want the kids eating what their parents eat. And I think this is so subversive of parental control over what kids are eating that it's reason enough to start thinking that maybe some voting with your vote is important here and there ought to be some restrictions on marketing to kids. So you raise the First Amendment and you raise the court. And the issue is, I mean, we all respect the First Amendment on political speech, as you said, and on neutral information. The question is, is there a different form of speech? Right? Is speech um, that um, advertises a reinforcing stimuli, right? in essence, a stimulus that, I mean, it's, it's another layer of stimulus. It's adding an another level of emotional gloss right, that amplifies the power of the underlying stimulus. And the, you know, one of the great questions, I think, for the court over the next two decades, I mean, and not this court as it's presently constructed, and I think it's a general, I mean, it's going to have to be a generational thing. I mean, you know, the first question to Sandra Day O'Connor uh, when they, uh, that she asked to the Solicitor General, she said, I still remember, my, my heart sank, she said, when we try to get nicotine regulation through, she said, nicotine is no more addictive than a horror movie, is it? I mean, so it, it, there is a, a sense that much, I mean, it's not just the advertising. It's, just, it's, it's not just the appeal. It's that you're advertising a reinforcing substance and you're, make, you're increasing the reward value the, and that affects the brain. Once you understand that the, the, this behavior is conditioned and driven, again, it's not a disease, but that it, you're, in, you're, you're laying down learning and motivational circuitry and wanting, right? And you're laying that down in kids. That gives you that has enormous policy implications. Yeah, there are chances of getting that through any time in the next. So how are you going to change it? I mean, we now have the neuroscience. So, so we, we, what we've done is you can't walk more than 10 feet without having a cue. Now, look, let's, this, about, about 15, 15%, some of you in, your, in the audience, those of you who raised their hand on the carrots, have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? I mean, you don't we, like we, food enough. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, well I mean, there, there's understand. I mean, it, it's sort of like we don't understand, but but there are certain genetic probably predispositions, not toward food itself. What was the name of the pilot who landed in the Hudson? Oh, Sully. Yeah. Sully. Right. I mean, so so you know, there's some people who are just, you know, um, no problem, no engines. I'm just going to put this plane down in the Hudson, just all in a day's work. 
as opposed to me going, holy shit, what am I going to do? <laughs> so, so there's a difference in emotional reactivity. We still don't, we, we, we still don't understand. You know, you watch, watch a couple, right? You watch a couple, yeah, I watch people eat in restaurants, right? And you watch somebody eat three quarters of their sandwich and stuff, and the other one's reaching over the fries, <laughs> right? So, so what is that underlying difference? So for those of you, there's some of you who, for whom food is not a very salient stimuli. You, gotta, you eat in order to stay alive, but you just as well take a pill. You're the ones whose brains I want to study. <laughs> We want a transplant. <laughs> I mean, I mean so, so, so the question is you have a reinforcing behavior. You're in this cycle, right? So we, we've, on Main Street, what would you do? We, we put a queue every 10 feet, right? I mean, Starbucks used to be empty at 4 o'clock. What did they do? They got you into Starbucks, right? They, they, so they created these drinks. What's these drinks? I mean, they're fat and sugar, right? So we, we, we now put fat and sugar on every corner, right? We made it available 24. Four, seven. We made it socially acceptable to eat any time, right? I, the, the tagline for you didn't show Taco Bell, the fourth meal. The fourth meal. I have a slide of that, right? but they only gave me 10 minutes. What can I say? Right. <laughs> so, so once you know that our brains are being captured, mm -hmm. and, and if you understand, this is not just about eating. If you understand eating and overeating, you understand, I would argue, our anxieties, our depressions, our phobias, our, I mean, our addictions. It's, these circuits are not just eating. But once we understand that it's these circuits that are getting captured, there's only certain things you can do to turn this around. Well, it seems to me that one of the ways, the important ways that the tobacco got conquered was by enlisting the children. I mean, it was a, sort of an amazing thing when, when that campaign moved into the school and suddenly every kid went home and started lecturing his parents about... Yeah. So, so what you, the day we'll be on the right track is when, you know, the child comes home and say, Mom, Dad, please don't take me to McDonald's. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. Right. And, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's but, where but, but, we... But, 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 let me, but let me give you a counter, okay? okay. I mean, you, you know this, but so the, 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 I hate to say this, but the hamburger at McDonald's is what, 400, 500 calories? It depends which hamburger. The, 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 just the hamburger Could be less. isn't that right. many. Could be so, less. so I go into Wolfgang Puck's. Uh, I mean, on Main Street in Santa Monica, right? And he brings, I mean, this is not McDonald's. This is not fast food, right? And, I, I, you know, he puts uh, the appetizer, I mean, on in the center of the table, right? It's enough to feed th three, four people. He comes out, I introduce myself to him, and I say, how did we get here? What is it? He said, you know, it's interesting. The first time I did it, people didn't eat it. Second time, they, they ate it. The third time, they couldn't get enough of it. He said, you know, Americans, sugar, fat, salt, they can't get enough. And then he said something that was very interesting. And this is the only part, Marion, maybe you and I disagree, is he said to me, and we did it together. Uh, mm -hmm. You willing to go that far? 
I think people, for the reasons that you so beautifully illustrated, people respond to these things, so they like them. And once you start responding to it, if restaurants start to shrink their portions, and remember, larger portions have more calories. The, uh, let me tell you, it's not intuitively obvious, and there's plenty, and there's, and there, there's plenty of research that shows that it's not intuitively obvious. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You want me to tell I got another question. This is what I wanted to ask. Right, so this is the other question. Do people who weigh more eat more? Yes, of course they do. It took, and it took the nutrition community how long to get to that? I don't know, it seemed pretty obvious to me. They have bigger bodies to support, Wait. they have to eat more. Right. But, but it, used, it used to be... We now have doubly labeled water experiments that demonstrate... But it used to be what? It used to be metabolism, Right. It, it used to be, and you looked at the food diaries, you believed people, they, I told, didn't. They, they told you that they were eating, <laughs> they told you they were eating, I'm just eating, they were lying. I'm eating nothing. Everybody lies. Everybody lies so, about so their you, diet. So, so how are you going to do this? Is it, I mean, governments, you know, are you going to sick the tea party after the, I mean, how do we do this? <laughs> now that's a terrifying thought. Um, yeah. I, I would just like to add one more piece of this, which is that at the same time that we were being marketed fat and sugar, et cetera, and salt, salt um, the natural foods, I mean, it, it, there's a complete correlation with the end of a decent strawberry. Uh -huh. So we used to get flavor out of you know, those carrots used to taste great, and suddenly we were getting these like horrible little baby carrots, which aren't really baby carrots, but just big carrots that have been ground down. Mm -hmm. And um, apples, which used to be, you know, great apples from a local farmer, were suddenly something that had been in storage, came from China and was in storage for two years and had no flavor. And so, um, you know, a piece of this is that the natural foods at exactly the point that fast food became ubiquitous, the natural foods had no flavor. So, so we now know. Right? So, so the issue is what are we going to do about it? And I think you're, you're right. And, and the, the, the question is, right now we have, mul we have many food movements, right? Mm -hmm. There's a food movement that cares about the ethical treatment of animals. Mm -hmm. There's a food movement that cares about eating organic. Locally. There's a food that cares about eating uh, local, right? Mm -hmm. the, the question is, over the next 20, I mean, you, you're not going to be able to rely on government to do this. Yes, government can help on disclosure. Yes, government can help on education. Yes, government can clean up some of these screwed up policies, right? But you're going to have to, I mean, I mean if, if, if I'm going to change, it's what? But it's happening. It's absolutely happening. These are the fastest segment, the growing segments of the food industry right now. Right. And so the question is, over the next 20 years, right, is there going to be, are we going to look back and say there was a food movement right, that, that's changed how I look I mean, at food? And, and I still think it's not clear whether we're going to, what do you think? Well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that you know, as a member of the much reviled media, you're making me feel pretty good because you're, you're pretty much saying that it's up to us to, and I have to say that when I went to Gourmet, um, Gourmet never talked about anything that had to do with food policy, food you, safety, you food right. health. Mm -hmm. And my publisher said, 
you know, you're going to lose all the readers, and that turned out not to be true. Um, and people couldn't. You lost the publisher. Lost the, publisher. <laughs> <laughs> the readers were with us, the publisher was not. It was that article about the Imolaki tomato workers <laughs> that just did them in. No. Um, but, it's a um, great article. You know, it is amazing that as, as recently as, you know, five years ago, you would never have read that story on the front page of the Times, and now it is very much part of the culture, and it seems to me that if we cannot look to policy changes from the government, and listening to the two of you, it sounds like we really can't, um, then it really is up to all of us to keep this alive. And, and it's going to have to be something, I mean, food, the, the part of the brain that it stimulates is the emotional core. And, and if fat, sugar, and salt stimulate, I mean, you know, why do we eat between five and bedtime, right? I mean, we, that's where most overeating occurs, right? And, and I'm eating and, you know, I'm in absolute bliss for two, three minutes, you know. <laughs> it, it is, you know, I've, I've achieved the bliss point. Nothing else that matters as I'm doing that. Ten minutes later, I feel lousy. But those two, three minutes, right, everything sort of, you know, drains off me while I'm sitting there, um, eating. It's, it, it, we, we have to understand how powerful food is because that's the emotional core. You, we're going to have to substitute that if we change that for something we care about more. It's not about knowledge. It's not about uh, uh, just the cognitive experience. It, it has to be something we care about emotionally because it has to be able to resonate and be as meaningful as that fat, sugar, and salt is. That's a tough one. Maybe at that point is, is where we should throw this open to questions. Um, Ooh, lots. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are people with microphones, so. Person with the microphone gets to ask the question. <laughs> okay, right down here. Fight over the microphone. <laughs> Am I first? Yeah. Hi, my name's Caroline Yorchak, and I was wondering why um, there can't be some kind of a movement to um, take the glamour away from or to make it socially unacceptable to overeat the way they did in the tobacco industry to deglamorize it and make it socially unacceptable to smoke. When I was in Japan five years ago, I asked one of our interpreters uh, who was there and I said, what, do, what does the Japanese people think of Americans? And she said, oh, well, we think you're very productive, you work hard. I said, no, 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 what do they say behind our back? She said, well, we think you eat too much. And she said, whenever we have American guests, we always have to order more food. So the fact that we eat an abundance of food, I was wondering if there's some way that a movement can, can take place or to begin to start to taking that approach. Yours. <laughs> so so I, if I could, where's the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation? Right. So these are my friends. I mean, if I could run the campaign, I mean, they understood, right? They understood, um, they were part, they won't admit this, of demonizing the tobacco industry, right? I mean, that, that was a campaign for tobacco-free kids worked for a decade. Right? Now, you gotta be very careful, because you can't demonize food, right? Because you look at, I mean, if I become fearful of food, right, that's, that can be an eating disorder. Mm. So you gotta, you're walking a, a close line. But I gotta be able to change the valence of the stimuli, right? So, if I had my choice, what I would demonize is big food. Not corporate big, but big portions. 
I would try to figure out how do I make big portions un uncool. I would also try, I think, to demonize, uh, I mean, I, you have two choices, understand. You can either celebrate the radish, right? And the radish is going to be the great emotional experience and want it. I like right? I mean, that. Right, I mean, that, so I got two here that they, they get, the radish is the most, you, you can glamorize the real food or you could demonize it. That's the only way you change the valence of a stimuli. So, you, so I think if you, you, you can demonize big food and I think you got to demonize processed food. And I think we got to also deal with when we eat, right? I mean, bringing food into work I mean, is a hostile act, <laughs> right? I mean, you're not doing people a favor. We have to bring back meals. Right, I mean, we have to eat with some structure. I mean, the, the fact is if you talk, I mean, it's a little more direct, right? If you, if you talk about uh, Europeans, what they really say about Americans, we don't want to look like them. Yeah, but, 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 but please understand this. This is not about weight. If anything, I am much more empathetic, right? Because this is a result of a conditioned neural circuits that are re responsible for weight gain, and, and, and I am much more empathetic. If you want to be thin, but you want the food, it's not going to work. We got to make this about the food and not the weight. Does somebody else have a microphone? Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan Cohen. I'm actually a neuroscientist, and in fact, I study dopamine. <laughs> so I wanted to offer one comment and then ask a question. Um, you started out by asking what dopamine does, and a lot of people said it mediates reward, and you were right to say that that's wrong. Um, you then pointed out that it um, mediates salience or, or signal salience, and as you said to Marion, I think that's true, but it's only half the truth. The other half, which I think supports your story, is that, and this is a discovery of really only the past 10 years, is that it's probably the most powerful learning substance in the brain. That it, it, it mediates reward predictions and teaches the brain to seek things that have activated it. And so in some sense, substances that activate dopamine, of which food is one, teach, um, they hijack the brain's learning system and teach the brain to seek those things again. All of the drugs of addiction do this, and that's why they're addictive, and food has been thought in some context when it's you know, when, when things go awry, to do exactly the same thing. So tell me, one thing I've always wanted to understand is where does memory fit into this? Right? I, mean, there, I mean, think about your favorite food right now, and my guess is you can taste it, right? I mean, that, that's Proust, that's the Madeleine. So, so there are extreme, I mean, I mean, highly salient stimuli, I mean, ha are associated with not only increased learning, but increased memory. Memory is associations, and learning is the forming of those associations. So they're, they're one and the same, really. Um, I, I want to um, ask a question, though. Um, you're emphasizing behavior, and I, I'm wholly sympathetic to that. Um, but there is a discovery made recently by one of my colleagues, Bart Hobel. I don't know if he's here. Um, seems not. But uh, he has found um, something remarkable, which is that high fructose corn syrup, high fructose sugars, in the same quantity as sucrose, um, uh, produce much larger weight gains, order of magnitude more weight gain. And he is pointing at that as an actual epidemiological factor, that the appearance of high, corn, uh, high, high fructose corn um, syrup and high fructose sugars in general in the diet may be one of the big factors, independent of all these other things that you're talking about. So I'm wondering whether you followed that story and whether you have a comment on that. 
Bart certainly deserves enormous credit. I mean, for decades he would go to the SSIB meetings. I mean, and basically talk about uh, the dopamine effects of of sugar, um, and it, it really was new new territory, and, and he deserves a lot of credit. I think I don't think it's cheese alone. I don't think it's just high fructose corn syrup. I don't think it's just the fact that we've put um, cheese and high fructose corn syrup on every corner. It's the fact that we've done all that. You know, again, what did we think we would do to ourselves? Right? I mean, we've done it, right? I mean, I mean, and the consequences of this. I mean, think about it. 2050, CDC says a third of us are going to be diabetic. I mean, if we're in trouble now as a country, I mean, where are we going to be? I mean, you, look, you talk about competitiveness. You talk about, now, it, it's possible. I mean, this, you know, th th that plateaus, that th there are other breaks, right? There are other social norms. But th th the fact is, these are very powerful circuitry, and they're what make us human, and this stuff is capturing our, these circuits. Let's go back a little. We've been in the front row. Okay, right there. Yep. Hi, this is Jennifer Nasser. Uh, this is a wonderful panel. I wanted to ask Marion, who I know, and uh, uh, David, whether you thought uh, a possible small way to start in a movement was to possibly bring back some traditions that our parents taught us. Uh, not so much of what we're eating, but how we're eating. If you're hungry, you don't, you know, I can remember when I, w when, when I was young, if I, if I was complaining about being hungry, I might get a bowl of cereal to hold me off till dinner. And uh, if I was going to a party, uh, my mother always made sure that we got a quarter of a peanut butter sandwich before we went to the Christmas party so that we wouldn't devour the plate. Of, of cookies. So I think in some cultures, the order that we eat foods, and they uh, start with a soup or a salad where you can uh, capitalize on what Barbara Roll says is, is volume, and then you have your, your main meal. In the French, they, they don't end with a sweet, because the sweet, after eating a protein, your sweet will turn your appetite back on. And some of those things, I think, might, I'm wondering what you think, be put into movements that don't need politics, that don't need the government. But what do you think, how effective do you think those are, at least as a beginning to start? Yeah, I'm very, very heartened by what's going on in schools and teaching kids how to cook. Um, not only teaching kids how to cook, but also teaching kids about where food comes from, um, how it's grown, what you do with it when you harvest it. Um, and kids who are going through these programs have a completely different relationship with food than kids who haven't been through these programs. And there's more and more evidence coming out now um, that they can taste things differently, they experience food differently, and they're much more interested and adventurous in their eating patterns. Uh, you go into one of these schools that has trans done these transformations, and I've been to schools in some of the poorest areas in Brooklyn, public schools, that have done this, and it's really very heartening. So that's kind of going back to those old values. If you look at dopamine, right, it's it's not just what's in our brains. I mean, it's how social norms, what I value, right, what my attitude is, 
I mean, that can affect my learning and how I view certain stimuli, right? And what I bring to interpretation of certain stimuli. We, this is about what we value. This is about what's meaningful uh, to us, right? I mean, so any change in behavior, the reason behavior change is so hard to do is that someone lectures somebody else and says, this is what you should do, and the, the person who wants, needs to do the behavior change, it's not meaningful to them, right? Once it becomes meaningful to them, right, they will do it. So you can't impose the values, except there, there is something about how so social norms work you know, that, in, that, that do have a real effect on the neuroscience. Here's a, somebody, yes, okay. <laughs> I think everything that you've said is true, but there's um, going back to old values where if you were hungry, give the child a carrot. I think also, though, we need to um, pay attention to what we're buying in the stores, because I noticed that there were originally very few stores that sold organic vegetables, and then when they realized more people were interested, that came into the stores. I think if people are diligent about reading packaging, they can reduce the stuff that isn't healthy. But there's another ingredient here that wasn't represented in the graphs that the doctor showed, and that's the factor that years ago, perhaps there was only one person working in the family. Now you have two people working. They're rushed when they come home, and what do they reach for? Something easy to throw in the oven and prepare and there's a lot of fat and fructose and everything else in it. So I think the approach that needs to be taken is, you know, through books, through um, media, through education, it has to be everything, or else it's not gonna work. So in, in the 1990s, we did that nutrition facts panel, right? The, uh, nutrition label, you know what I'm talking about on all processed foods. And I, at a point in time, you know, so we did the fat, we did the sugar, we did the salt, and you know, you get, you know, I thought we we'd done some good, and, and you look at it and you say, well, if everything is zero, you know, well, that must be good, and then I find myself drinking Diet Coke and eating artificial yogurt, and everything's <laughs> zero, and none of this is food, right? So we still got a long way to go on labeling. What I'd love to see on the front of package is what's really in the food, right? I mean, and whether there's any real food in that. But that's, that's another step. Yeah, my rules for eating are stay out of the center aisles, don't eat anything in a package. If you must eat a package, don't eat anything with more than five ingredients. It shouldn't have an ingredient that you can't pronounce, and it shouldn't have a cartoon on the package because they're trying to sell it to your kids. All right, so, so, so you, <laughs> This is you, a slight exaggeration. So, 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 so you said to me, you were talking to a friend, right, of, of ours, and you said, is it true for the last 30 years of marriage, the two of you have not cooked, right? right. You eat out all the time. So for those of us who... That's him. No. Right, that, no, right. <laughs> for those of us who tend to eat out more, mm -hmm. right? I can't trust anyone these days. I mean, how am I gonna, I, I mean, the only way, I mean, I think the reality is, unless you cook it yourself, you don't know what's in the food. Yeah, I mean, if you're eating out all the time, you have a big management problem. It seems to me, and for a lot of people, eating out is very, very difficult to manage for exactly the reasons that you describe. You're given this enormous quantity of 
hopefully delicious food that you've just paid for, you want to eat it. It's sitting in front of you. You're going to eat it. So how do you manage that? Personally. Well, go to the next question. Personally. And, I want to know how And chefs want to please right. you, so they're going to put he, he as must, many pleasing fats, yeah. sugars, right. and salts right. into everything You're, as they can. So you write a book, and then you know you, you can't read it all. <laughs> okay, next question. It's a good book. How do you do? Uh, my name's Scott Anderson. Um, my question is, what is, what is America willing to pay for to get into a better health regimen? What are they, what are they willing to pay? Are they willing to pay... Uh, the amount of money it takes to go to a fine dining restaurant and eat real food, or are they willing to go get an eight ninety nine Kobe burger at Applebee's? Um, what is America willing to do to get into shape? Oh, we're talking about federal policy here. There's a reason why you go to McDonald's and you can buy five hamburgers or one salad with the same five dollars. Those are political choices. We right, could make other choices and make the cost of fruits and vegetables lower. We could. But with, exactly, but with the push for local foods and local farms and organics, people are more willing to go to a shop right or a local grocery store and pay less for frozen vegetables than they are to go get your organic, you know, go to a grocery store and go to the organic section and pay but for But there's a reason vegetables. why those foods are more expensive. There's a reason why the index price of fruits and vegetables has gone up by 40% when sodas have gone down by 30%. Those are political decisions. Uh, you want people to eat more of, of fruits and vegetables, you make the fruits and vegetables cheaper. That would be one way to do it. And there's some evidence that it would work. There's a, somebody here. What do you think the impact can be uh, when celebrities, and I, I guess I think of her as a celebrity in this particular case, like Michelle Obama, mm -hmm. um, caught the people with um, trying to get kids to eat in a healthy way and growing their own vegetables and that kind of thing. Do you think that has any impact at all? I'm also thinking of Jamie Oliver doing stuff in schools. I mean, the, ja the Jamie Oliver TV show was a dramatic example of that, but um, I mean, I thought it was pretty remarkable I that he too. actually put himself on the line like that and was willing to make a fool of himself on television um, with a, a supremely hostile population and you know it was but he's enormously charming and he put a lot of energy into it I think you know the fact that you know Mrs. Obama has asked every chef in the country to adopt a school um, and um, you know I think that is making a real difference I mean I think there is um, a movement that we don't see um, that, you know, I, I think Mrs. Obama's being so interested in this has had a huge Im impact. Um, and I, I think chefs being interested in it has also had a huge impact and will continue to do so. I think she's been pitch perfect. Yeah, I, I think there's a, I mean, you may not, you may ask, okay, show me the, the impact, right? What difference is this going to, to make? But there is a school cafeteria um, a chef out there who's going to do something different because she heard the first lady. Right? There's a small business owner who's going to do something different for their employees because, so I mean, I, I think she has, especially in an era where they're taking such grief about the role of government and what the legitimate role of government is, 
and when you're getting, you know, sort of battered by both sides, right? I think she's done a terrific job. Over here? Yeah. I, oh, do we have people with? I, I have a I have a mic over here. Okay. <laughs> Marion, you had spoken about how there's more happening in schools with cooking at a younger age now. I'm kind of interested in why people don't cook at home more, not just from the perspective of convenience, but and Ruth, in your work, have you seen a descendant sort of? you know, sort of trend in people's cooking abilities, and where do you think that comes from? Well, and, and how do you think we could reverse it? I mean, I, I do think that for people of my generation, um, Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique had a huge impact on one generation of women, which essentially said to them, you know, liberate yourself from the kitchen, don't be a slave to this, and, uh, and so there was a generation who grew up without m seeing their mothers cooking. And, you know, the breakup of, you know, what were once a village of, of you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents, etc. so there was someone cooking, and, and people learned to cook sort of by osmosis, and we've had this, I think, really terrible professionalization of cooking, where suddenly, um, I mean, cooking is easy. I mean, it's a natural activity. Anybody can cook. I mean, the idea that you need to produce chef meals or perfect meals and that you need to be, um, you know, to take lessons before you can cook is, is a bill of goods that we've been sold. And so we have a lot of work to come back to, um, I mean, I myself believe that we are cooking animals. It's what we do. And, um, we, you know, we sort of need to get back to that notion of, hey, you know, it, it's it's... It's simple, and um, we really need to teach people to cook again. It's, it's, I mean, if you look at gourmet and you look at the difference in the recipe instructions over the 70 years of that magazine, you get a stunning example, very visual, of what people needed to know in 1941 and what they need to know today. Um, because there was just, people knew 80% of what we now have to spell out for you. Um, I'm Tracy Orleans, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and we work hard to, right now um, over the last five years to prevent childhood obesity. And I just wanted to, to uh, add here that it's not just a movement to denormalize unhealthy eating or large portions or policy. What we're seeing is policy small p. Um, environmental changes happening in schools and communities across the country actually contribute to the movement, contribute to um, a change in perception and, and expectation. So I'm going to be an optimist um, about the possibility of gradual policy changes. I'm really impressed by what's happening in schools and I'm really impressed by what's happening in California where, and, and in Arkansas, where we've seen states where the rise in childhood obesity um, has been reversed and appears to be dipping some. And we can trace it to these policies. They may not be policies that we can change easily at the top, farm bill, et cetera. But I think there is, um, I'm very optimistic about bubbling up 
um, from schools and communities. And I would say that all of us need to support and be part of those policies. And I think that was the case for clean indoor air law too. Uh, laws, they really denormalized and, and uh, tobacco use. So I'm not sure it's either or, I think it's both. Thank you. Thank you for great presentation.